This program is brought to you from the Margaret Farrow Studio. Hello and welcome to Newsmakers. I'm your host, Lisa Pugh. We are coming to the end of Black History Month and it has been a calendar full of celebratory events and important discussions statewide, despite a continued heated debate in the Capitol over the value of diversity. Today's Newsmakers, we welcome Legislative Black Caucus Chair Representative Dora Drake, Senator LaTanya Johnson, and Representative Lakeisha Myers. Welcome to all of you to Newsmakers. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. us. So I know it's been, we're celebrating 100 years of Black History Week, was uh, founded by, I'm checking my history, Carter Woodson in 1924. How do you, I'll start, I'll start with you, Representative Drake, how do you like to personally celebrate Black History Month? What's important to you? So how I personally like to celebrate Black History Month is always remembering who's come before me. I think it's easy to get caught up in the benefits and privileges we have today, not realizing the sacrifices that people have had to make along the way. And so I think it's always important that we pay homage to the people that have come before us, not just in terms of honoring their legacy, but that we don't forget whose shoulders we stand on. Senator Johnson, what would you say? So I have a bunch of little cousins, and I love using this opportunity to reinforce um, just some of the negativity that they've experienced throughout their lives, out their lives. Um, we have conversations about what it means to be black, um, what a privilege it is to be black. Um, we have conversations about our natural hair and you know how I like their curls and different things like that, just trying to build them up for being who they are and being able to reaffirm that there's nothing wrong with being black, it's okay. And um, usually I try to do that on a daily basis, but February is a perfect time to do it. Representative Myers, how do you celebrate the month? Uh, with a host of different programs, church programs, usually um, community-wide celebrations. Um, but similar to what Senator Johnson said, is celebrated every day in my household, but to really highlight a lot of the um, unknown figures in black history that we may not regularly hear about. Most times students hear about Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, people like that, Rosa Parks, but there are so many more individuals, inventors, actors, you know, people in all different genres and walks of life that we often don't know about. So doing that extra work, that deep digging and coming up with new folks that we can highlight and celebrate is part of the interest for me into the month. I know that some people might not know that the first president to proclaim Black History Month was a conservative Republican, Ronald Reagan. In his proclamation in 1986, we have it on the screen, uh, he said the foremost purpose of Black History Month is to make all Americans aware of this struggle for freedom and equal opportunity. It is also a time to celebrate the many achievements of blacks in every field. The American experience and character can never be fully grasped until the knowledge of Black History Month our black history assumes its rightful place in our schools and our scholarship. Senator Johnson, I'll start with you. What's your reaction when you hear a quote like that from a conservative Republican and compare it to your experience today as a woman legislator? 
You know, when you were reading that, I couldn't help but wish that he was in the Capitol today because that is not the sentiment that we get. Um, it's, it's so far away from that. We see so many attacks on minorities in that building from wanting to eliminate DEI in the UW systems um, to, let's just talk about it, in the Capitol, our Black History Proclamations, and how we have the hardest time getting those passed if names are included, because they may not like some of the names. So even during the month of February, we are not free or privileged to do as we so choose, even though we're all elected by the same number of people, um, it's, ju it's just become really hard to, it's become really hard to try and get that through to the other side, um, probably because there's no DEI training in the building. So um, I know uh, we talked a little bit before the interview uh, that eliminating DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, has been a theme for legislative Republicans in the Capitol over the last year. I know that um, in the Assembly they took up a bill that would ban what they call loyalty pledges, uh, prohibiting UW system schools and technical colleges from requiring students or faculty from having to pledge personal support toward DEI. Um, supporters of that bill said in a public hearing, DEI policies are openly hostile to debate and the marketplace of ideas. They said the policies strike an uncanny resemblance to the Soviet demands for complete intellectual submission. What's your reaction to that way of explanation of DEI? First of all, I would say that it's asinine. And if you take the quotation that you just gave us from President Reagan and look at the purpose of Black History Month and juxtapose that with what was said in the hearing, where did we go wrong is the first question. Mm -hmm. um, when you look at equal employment, like the EEOC Commission, looking at uh, minority participation grants, all of those things that fall under the category of DEI, they were done to help level the playing field for African Americans, first of all, and then for other minorities, including white women that have taken great advantage of, of some of the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that exist in federal policy as well as in state policy. So this was done to ensure that there was equity across the board for workers in general. When you have no DEI training, it opens up for lawsuits. It opens a workplace up to inappropriate behavior, speech, all of those things that we've tried to get away from in the workplace that people have, wor have worked to move away from all of these years. So there's a reason that federal policy exists for us to have standards in the workplace so people can get their work done and not be harassed, intimidated, actually have the ability to be hired in certain jobs because that was a door that was closed to many African Americans especially. Getting certain government employment, getting employment in certain industries, um, it was not open to us. But until you had these policies in place, that's where we are now. Representative Drake, wh where do you think the confusion is on DEI? Is, is there a, are there ineffective DEI policies? Should there be more emphasis on best practices? Mm -hmm. I think you can always look for best practices. So I don't think there's a question or confusion on the benefits of DEI. I think what we're witnessing here in Wisconsin, not just in Wisconsin, but honestly nationwide, is a repeal of everything that has 
allowed African Americans, minorities, communities of color to at least reach to the goal of where other counterparts have thrived for so long. And so now that we're seeing that we have groups of individuals that are aiming to be better, um, actually starting to achieve those goals, I think people are responding out of fear. And so I don't think it's a question of knowing the importance of DEI. One of the issues that we see in here in our state is how our state population's decreasing, right? And so there's always talks about how can we keep people here, especially our young people, students who want to stay here, work here, go to school here. But we hear loud and clearly that they believe in diversity. They know how it benefits them as an individual, how it will help them grow as an individual professionally, and who they would have to work with outside of school. And so this is not a discussion or a conversation on the lack of you know, DEI. This is an attack on repealing anything that helped us reach the mark um, in order to s take 10 steps backwards. I think it's a policy of fear as well. All of anti the things, anti-DEI is a policy of fear. When you look at national statistics and understand that the United States is no longer going to be a white majority come 2040, we have to really look at where we are and look at numbers. There is a bastion of fear that exists that someone else is going to get something that I'm supposed to have. When you look, go back to Manifest Destiny and the fact that we even colonized what became the United States, it was primarily white men who said, this is now my property, this is now my land, I have the ability to have all of these rights and freedoms. They were not extended to people of color in the beginning. You had chattel slavery, you, you know, took over, you know, and, and had Native American finishing schools, and all of these things that existed to keep a certain standard in place. When you have policies like diversity, equity, and inclusion that say no, you need to make sure that things are fair and equitable for all people, it's like, okay, what can we do? What can we do? We're losing ground. You're not losing anything with diversity, equity, and inclusion. If anything, you should be welcoming that because the populations that are coming here, whether they be immigrant, whether they be, you know, second, third generation, you know, people, all of these things, a, you have a more diverse workplace that any business person will tell you they want the best worker. You know, since the DEI debate has really heated up in the Capitol, the universities of Wisconsin system have been starting to make some changes in response. And President Rothman um, banned the use of diversity statements across hiring in the university system. Uh, by the end of the academic year, uh, universities will be eliminating race as a factor in scholarships. What do you think the impact of those changes in the UW system will be on faculty and students? Well, let's be clear. Um, those, um, they negotiated that, those um, in the deal, in, in in deal, basically holding a gun to the university's head, right? They negotiated based on dollars that were already allocated to the university that had passed both joint finance and passed in that budget, and they held that money captive to force them to get rid of DEI, to force them to get rid of that language. I think that speaks volumes for the individuals who are in that capital. But not only does that speak volumes, it, speak, it speaks volumes when you look at 
in terms of disparities that we're seeing in this state. You know, Wisconsin being the worst place to raise an African-American child. How did we get there? You know, we've lost 126,000 26-year-olds. They're fleeing. They've left. And that's been over the last 10 years. And the question is why? I think we see in our schools and in our young people that are coming up, they are being raised in environments, in educated environment, in environments where everybody's being accepted, right? They're seeing more and more mixed-raced families. They're seeing more and more LGBTQ, and it's okay. But I think in the Capitol, the people who are in charge, they don't want that tolerated. They want things to go back to where they were, and that's causing us to not only lose in diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it's causing us to lose a lot of our younger people. What's wrong with wanting everybody to have equal access? Do you see in the university there'll be fewer students of color going to college and graduating? Do you think it'll come out in the data when these policies continue to be implemented? Yes, and you know why it'll come out in the data? is because those schools were struggling with DEI to begin with. You have the University of Madison, I think they have, what, 50,000 students? And less than about 7,000 of those are children of color. So it can only be expected that when this comes to fruition, that they're going to be able to recruit fewer um, students of color. It's not going to be um, acceptable in those scholarships, so they're not going to be able to go out and actively recruit those minorities the way that they were doing all along. And so you have to ask yourself, why is this state losing so many of its younger people when other states are gaining? And I think it's indicative of who we have at the helm in terms of the state capitol, um, in the majority party. They're just not making Wisconsin a friendly or acceptable place for people of color. So many many would blame those gerrymandered maps for the reason for this hyperpartisanship for a lot of these, um, the debate around DEI and other similar issues. Now, after this long legal battle, we have new maps. Governor Evers signed his version of the maps. He says now the maps are finally fair. I know that both Representative Drake, Representative Myers, you came out with statements talking about your view of these maps. We'll start with reading Representative Myers' statement. She said, the map signed today is still truly not, uh, not truly fair. There are concerns regarding the Voting Rights Act and how communities of like interest are impacted, especially in Senate District 4. It is my hope that the court would still take these issues into consideration to arrive at a contiguous metric of electoral equity. Anything else would be a disservice to the African-American voters. Um, Representative Drake, you said, uh, though this is a step in the right direction to fight against the Republican gerrymander, we have concerns if this map violates the Voting Rights Act. We will be seeking additional experts and input to confirm if this map upholds the Voting Rights Act and move accordingly. Representative Drake, I'll start with you. Mm -hmm. Do you think the map is fair and what sort of input are you seeking? Yes, so I do have concerns that the maps uh, violate the Voting Rights Act. So with the 11th Assembly District, the district that I currently hold, it is, I believe, a little over 70% of African-American population. And so there can, be an, there can be an argument made if that district is packed or not. 
So with that being said, um, in terms of seeking out additional counsel and input from experts, um, is to verify, you know, due to voting patterns, due to, you know, different criteria that's required underneath the Voting Rights Act due to communities of interest and equal protection clause, making sure that those things are intact and if not, you know, then looking at what necessary steps need to occur. What's to your timeline for seeking that input and making a decision? As soon as we can get the information. Representative Myers, in your statement, you also called out fairness and the Voting Rights Act. Do you see potentially participating in a court challenge to those maps? What, what are your plans? Um, same as what the chair said, when we get further information to see what we need to do to move forward, I would hope that with the original timeline that was established by the Supreme Court that they would still take that under consideration um, to look at any metric so that it could hold up in a federal court um, with the Voting Rights Act standards that we have um, because you don't want communities of like interest. When you look at 70% of all African Americans that live in the state live in Milwaukee County and most of them live between Senate District 6 and Senate District 4. So when you look at the majority of African Americans living in the city of Milwaukee and living in those two particular districts, you have to wonder what sense it would make to have a North Shore suburban district have the ability to possibly make an outcome on an election in that way when you look at incarceration patterns, voter participation that Senator, uh, that Representative Drake just said, um, you know, to look at those things in that um, respect. So I think all of those things have to be, you know, pl placed into perspective. Senator Johnson, I know you had, you were skeptical that the Republicans were going to bring the governor's map forward in the first place. Do you think that this is a, a more fair map. Do you think that there could be some Republican shenanigans still? So I do think that this map is fairer than what we have right now, and that's evident. Do I believe that the Republicans have shenanigans up their sleeve? I most certainly do. And the reason that I do is because for the last over 10 years, Republicans have relied so heavily on gerrymandered map maps in order to keep their majority. Um, and, you know, some people say, well, all parties do it. I would argue that that's technically not true because if that was the case, Republicans would have never won the majority if the Democratic maps were gerrymandered. And so when you talk about fairness and equity, that's an issue because because of them being in the majority because of gerrymandered maps. It hurts every last one of our districts, especially our minority districts. Because when we try to bring up legislation to address the disparities in our community or to address issues that we know are pertinent, they're shot down. We don't even get an opportunity to have a hearing, a committee hearing on those issues. No less have those same, no less have that same legislation make it to the floor. So it's hurting minority populations so much more because our disparities are so much greater. And so just to have the opportunity to, even if we're not in the majority, to at least have it balanced more um, is extremely crucial, not just for this state, but especially for a lot of the populations that we represent. 
uh, Republicans are trying to pass a constitutional amendment that would ban government agencies from the local and at the state level from using race, sex, ethnicity, and other factors in hiring decisions. That amendment has passed the assembly. It still has many steps to go before it would ever show up on a Wisconsin ballot. The author of that amendment says there's already inconsistencies in hiring practices and that hiring should be based on merit. What reaction do you have to that? Um, I think it is nuanced and, quite frankly, uh, misinformed. Is because if we were to solely base hiring practices on merit based on someone's ability to work well, this than the other, we shouldn't see rates of low employment for black and African Americans just in Wisconsin, but also nationwide. And the reason why efforts such as diversity, equity, and inclusion policies were even enacted was to ensure that people wouldn't be discriminated against or prevented from opportunities for work, from housing, from employment, whatever that was. And so to have a constitutional amendment to push that forward is just another attack on trying to push back the um, strifes that we have made, you know, and trying to prevent us from moving forward. Representative Myers, earlier you mentioned that you think a lot of the debate around DEI is rooted in fear. Mm -hmm. Do you think if that constitutional amendment made it to a ballot in Wisconsin that it would pass? Do you think Wisconsinites would vote for that provision? I think the Wisconsin electorate is smarter than the Republican Party gives them credit for, and I think they understand a red herring when they see one. Um, so I don't think that it would be, um, you know, given the campaign to to explain what this is to people, um, I don't think they would fall for it, no. And then it it depends on how it's written. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We see that, that so many times with referendums on the ballot, right? Yeah. If they put it in the most confusing mm -hmm. terms mm -hmm. where it's meant to be confusing, it's mm -hmm. meant for people not to get the correct understanding, then you are going to have some people vote for that, n unknowingly what they're voting for. We see that absolutely all the time. Just like the what was it, the worker one that they had, I think, yeah. last year or the year before, required, for, required for, benefits. for payment benefits. Do mm -hmm. you think that people who are able-bodied should, it was written in a way that would be mm -hmm. like, well, yes, that sounds, Even let me, right. we, we had to explain to people, yeah. do not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on to, there's an election coming up in November. I don't know if you're aware of that, but, <laughs> 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 but, um, uh, we talked a little bit before the show that uh, former President Trump is very likely the GOP nominee for president. He made some comments in South Carolina over the weekend comparing his own legal troubles and indictments to the plight of black Americans, um, shocking a lot of people. Uh, but yet recent polling out of Howard University shows that he is gaining support among black voters, particularly young black men. Representative Myers, why do you think that is? How much time do we have? Only five minutes. But I will say that I think there was always a Trump appeal in rap music, things like that. It, you know, in the 2000s, it was like, oh, Trump was rich. Trump was all of these things. So I think that 
lingering appeal exists to maybe a younger population. I think people who are older, more established, work every day, you know, have careers, understand that this is basically like the farce of all of all times um, come to fruition. When you look at someone like Donald Trump, I think trying to equate the, you know, jail sentences of a Martin Luther King or, you know, Ralph Abernathy, people like that with him. Uh, no, not the same thing at all. Those folks went to jail for equity and equal rights. This person is going to jail for, you know, slander, libel, you know, molesting people, all of these other things that are happening. So you cannot equate those two situations. Um, so I think understanding the differences in that is something that I think he's grossly miscalculating. I also think, too, that... You, what you're seeing with, I think, a lot of young people is this uh, distrust of establishment. Mm -hmm. And so with former President Trump, you know, he absolutely embodies that. You know, yeah. he challenged the media, he challenged the press, he challenged anything that we currently have that's in our democracy. And people thrive through that if they feel like they've not been heard or have just been completely ignored. And so what I think has to be important moving forward when we engage with young voters, especially young black men, um, and young black women is actually listening to the issues that they're addressing. And I think far too often um, we do a really good job of saying what the issues are versus actually listening to what our constituents and young people have to say. And I think if we do that, then we can easily you know, actually hear what they're talking about and address them. It also is an onus on Democrats to actually be able to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the other part. And how they're reaching, how they're black, reaching voters. black voters, what they've done, are, show the are receipts. Are Democrats doing a good enough job of that? I think now you're starting to see it more, but you want to make sure that they use utilize all outlets, utilize all the surrogates that they have to tell the story. It can't just be the same people who are in the job. You know, it can't be just the president saying, look what I did, look what I did. Mm -hmm. Getting other people to give you a tangible example of what those policies were. Senator Johnson, there's a lot of concern about low enthusiasm among black voters. I know Democrats do rely on a good turnout of the black vote in Milwaukee area in elections. What are you hearing from voters about that potential Biden-Trump matchup and voter enthusiasm in general? Well, a lot in the community, it, it depends on who you're talking to. If you find a savvy voter who's paying attention to, you know, politics on a on a daily basis, then you're going to hear a different conversation. You're going to hear them talk about everything that Biden has done and how they can't allow Trump to get in because they're aware. But if you're talking to some everyday ordinary person who doesn't follow politics, they feel that neither person has done anything for them. Their life is the same as it was before these individuals get elected and it's going to be the same afterwards. Are they likely to vote? Some of them are, and some of them are saying that they're not because their vote isn't important. And those are the individuals that you really have to double down on your education, right? Most people think that if they elect the right person, that's it. That's all they have to do. They don't necessarily understand, especially in Madison, the majority rules. So even though I'm elected and I have high ambitions for changing the circumstances in my community, I cannot do that if I don't get help from the majority party. And I cannot do that if you are not important to the majority party. And I think us as Democrats, I'll just say it, we do a piss poor job of um, messaging and even worse, 
at getting out what we've done and what we're about. And I think one of the reasons that Trump has so much appeal is that he's not he's not politically correct. Mm -hmm. And people want to hear sometimes not a messaging speech. They don't want to hear that. They want to hear people telling the truth and telling things how it is. I think the problem, though, is sometimes they get Trump's not being co politically correct with him always telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. The thing that really makes me angry um, from Trump's statement is that it is not equal to the plight of black people, right? If it does anything, it shows black people what you can get away with if you're rich and privileged and white. And I don't think that there's anybody in this state that could do half of the things that Trump did and still be allow allowed out on bail. I used to be a bail bondsman, and I know this to be true. First of all, we don't have the money for the bail, right? So if you don't have money for bail, it means that you stay incarcerated longer. And these are things that Trump doesn't have to worry about, right? Um, being able to file bankruptcy as many times as you want and still hold on to your equity, still hold on to your property, and then able to make a comeback and still make millions, that is not a black person's plight. You know, I'll just say it. Rich people file bankruptcy to keep their toys. Black people file bankruptcy to keep their lights on. It's not the same. I know we are running out of time here, and I wanted to make sure we end on a positive note. We started our conversation talking about Black History Month, and I want to go down the line here and have you each name your own mentor. I know that the Senate resolution for Black History Month listed a lot of really important historical Wisconsinites mm -hmm. who are black and their accomplishments, and I'm wondering who, who is your mentor that you think about for Black History Month? So driving up here, actually three names came to mind. Um, and even though they're past, you know, they've passed away, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, Bishop Desmond Tutu, and Billie Holiday. Each of their stories, I think, are so unique in what they stood for, what they endured to reach a certain goal, and it's inspiring in terms of them staying true to what they believed was true. Senator Johnson? I would have to say Barnell Allen. She was my um, guidance counselor in high school, and it's local, but she made the biggest impact in my life than anybody. Um, I was a first-generation college student. I didn't even know how to fill out a, a college application. And I was raised by my grandparents. We didn't have much money. I remember telling Miss Allen that I wasn't going to go to college right away, that I was going to work. She said, no, you're not, because if you do, you'll never go. And because of her, she helped me apply for colleges on a financial um, scholarship because I, I didn't have the money for the application fees. Um, she helped me to get help with, you know, filling out financial aid applications. So I would have to say if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't even be sitting here. Representative Myers. I would probably say my favorite writer, which was Zora Neale Hurston. I like the fact that she merged... Um, storytelling, uh, the anthropology of places and people and feelings and did that. So that's one of the things I've tried to do is make sure that you're a part of a place and that you can tell the story well. Well, thank you all for sharing that and thank you for being with us today for a really important conversation. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you to the viewers of Newsmakers. Be sure to tune in again as we highlight the issues and sit down with the decision makers who make a difference for all of us.
You have been watching a production of Wisconsin Eye, your unfiltered window into legislative deliberations and public policy programming, where our mission is to provide Wisconsinites an opportunity to access the legislative process and connect with conversations that inform our citizenry. Please consider supporting our mission, and thank you for watching. Wisconsin Eye, policy made public.